You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for a slightly delayed Journal Club episode. How are you, Ben? Oh, mate, it's good to be back. I'm really good and uh, happy that we're just going to have a nice gentle start to Journal Club. Our thoughts are still with our simulation and clinical colleagues who are working hard all around the world, we know. Uh, But we also realise people, life goes on. And so we've got some interesting thoughts about simulation and four papers to share with you, uh, one of which might be slightly related to COVID, but the others are all applicable to our general simulation practice. Uh, But before we do that, any updates, Ben? What's with you? Uh, no, nothing super. I guess with the journal club, we've we've given people a bit of a break, given that they were likely concentrated on pandemic things, and so we're keen to uh, start back up after this podcast and and rebegin our one from March, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but no, just many thoughts uh, for many friends around the world having a pretty tricky time. Absolutely, and more on next steps at the end of this podcast. But let's kick off with paper one, which is mine. And this is uh, titled Nurse-Physician Communication Team Training in Virtual Reality versus Live Simulation, Randomized Control Trial on Team Communication and Teamwork Attitudes. And this is by Sokying Liao et al. in the Journal of Medical Internet Research, January 2020. Not a journal I am used to reading, but I was Brought, this was brought to my attention on Twitter by a colleague and I thought, well, in these times when many are in physical or social distancing, uh, it's becoming hard to run live simulations. So many people are looking to this idea about virtual reality as a different platform or alternative platform. So to give you an overview, uh, it's exactly what the title says. It's a comparison of VR team sims versus live team sims as measured by firstly teamwork attitudes and secondly by team communication performance after these simulation interventions. So, Ben, even before I get into it, um, sounds like a pretty good question. Yeah, look, and I think very valid for the time. And as you said, people are really thinking about this stuff. Um so, yeah, I think it's it's certainly the right time to start asking that. Yes, and in their background, uh, and to be clear, the research was done and written up before the pandemic. Uh, they describe some fairly obvious points that teamwork and communication are good, uh, that training helps, uh, but they make the point that it can be hard to actually get people together to do uh, live team training. And so they posit that uh, virtual reality might have an accessibility advantage and they describe that the way technology is now, this is at least starting to be a viable platform to use their words. And they describe some work that this group have previously done uh, using the specific platform that they used in this study. So what did they do? This was a pre-test, post-test RCT. They had two groups of senior medical and nursing students All of the students had an initial 20-minute computer lesson on communication, and I understand that was a fairly didactic exercise. And then Group 1 had an intervention that was probably familiar to many of us, a so-called standard live team training where uh, medical and nursing students, along with a simulated patient and facilitator, uh, partook in scenarios related to sepsis in this case, a 15 to 20 minute sim and then a debrief. The second group 
uh, had the same scenarios, but these were practiced in a virtual reality environment. So the facilitator, the students, and the simulated patient all logged in to this computer-based platform. Uh, so it still required synchronous attendance, and they took part uh, in those same scenarios. And there's a nice table in the paper that uh, outlines clearly what tasks they were required to do and how that differed in the live and the VR environments. So I know this is what you're asking. So how did they measure whether there was any difference between these groups? So there were two things they did. One was a questionnaire about teamwork attitudes, and they gave this to the students before the simulations and then after. And in good news, both groups scored higher after the intervention. The second measure was a team-based simulation assessment. So this was actually getting them to come back in now into a live environment uh, and a video recording of them undertaking another scenario. And then a group used a validated team communication scale to rate their performance. And very simply, there was no difference between the live group and the VR group. So Ben, Looks like we can just jump in and do all our sims on VR. What do you think? Yeah, look, I I had some concerns about the effect of the whole intervention either way in three months' time and that it seemed that there was minimal improvement overall in the group. Was I reading that right? Yes, I think you are. And so it felt like we were in some ways sort of proving non-inferiority but that in terms of it as an educational intervention there wasn't much long-term impact on the participants so I felt there was potentially some overreach on the benefit of that educational intervention on this group for the learning objectives that were aimed for. Yeah I think it's always tricky when you have got two groups and you show no difference. Is it really that there is no difference between the groups or is it that there is no measured difference? Uh, Because I think most would agree that assessing teamwork and communication is hard uh, and these structured tools that often appear in this kind of research highly privilege explicit communication and as we know many very high performing teams have a lot of implicit communication. So this is, you know, all credit to the authors for rigorously trying to look at this, but there just aren't great measures that might tease out the differences between the live and the VR simulations, I think. So I'm not sure that simply finding no difference between the two convinces me that VR is okay to do as a substitute for live simulation, um, perhaps provocatively. Uh, what about if we'd had a placebo arm where they did nothing and they put them in the same assessment? I think that might have actually given us a better answer to question one. And I think that's uh, a placebo that you could probably get through the ethics committee as well. Well, interestingly, (laughs) my experience of educational ethics committees is, uh, you're right, it doesn't do any harm, but they, uh, ethics committees don't like the idea of students not getting education. So interestingly, randomizing people to not get something is quite hard to do. Uh, But I think if you promise to give it to them after the study, then that's reasonable. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And then I guess the final point for me is... um, Like with all of these comparisons of one method or another, I'm not sure whether they should be competing or whether, in fact, they're complementary. Almost certainly there is a role for VR simulation in the 
potentially priming or prepping people for a live simulation or for addressing certain domains of competence. Uh, and so I think sometimes this testing one against the other is not quite the right question. It should be what does this add and what will this address effectively? Um, and maybe the two together actually have a very um, uh, excellent outcome. I think specifically as well for communication, it it's, it just doesn't sit with me as being the right educational method to hammer that home. You lose all that rapport building. You you lose those face-to-face connections. And I get it from a mental rehearsal kind of perspective, but I agree. I, I think it's not a one-for-one replacement solution. Yeah. Anyway, I think we, we watch this space because there's obviously unprecedented interest in how we can navigate some of the new constraints on our simulation delivery. So I'm sure we're going to see more work along these lines. Uh, interestingly, one of the next steps that they describe is using artificial intelligence to replace the uh, simulated patient and the doctor. So we'll look forward to being out of a job then. <laughs> it uh, does, does still worry me in 50 years' time, but I think we're safe for now. You're listening to Simulcast. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you uh, go on and tell us about our next paper? Great. Well, I am pushing myself out of my comfort zone and I looked at a surgical paper today, although certainly well within my comfort zone of specialty. So the paper I was looking at was Clinical Impact of the Introduction of Pediatric Intersusception Air Enema Reduction Technology in a Low to Middle Income Country Using Low-Cost Simulation-Based Medical Education. And it was by uh, Ram Nataraja et al. and published in February 2020 in Simulation in Healthcare. It's a co-publication from Monash Children's Hospital and apologies if I pronounced this wrong, but uh, Yangon Children's Hospital in Myanmar. So the aims of the study were to use simulation-based medical education with an intersusception simulator to introduce air enema reduction to Myanmar and to assess its effect on provider behaviours and resulting clinical care. So to give you guys a bit of a clinical background, if anyone doesn't know, intersusception is essentially a pediatric bowel obstruction where the bowel folds in and telescopes in on itself, a bit like when you fold up a telescope, but then it gets stuck. And when it gets stuck, the blood supply to that area gets impaired and the bowel starts to die off. So it's a time critical thing that you need to fix. Once it's actually diagnosed, then you need to unfold that bowel and you can do that one of two ways. One is you gut the kid open, have an operation, straighten out the bowel, uh, which comes with all the associated risks of having an operation, or you give them an air enema, which is essentially you blow air up the bum until the bowel loops straighten out. And then if that fails, then you go to theatre. And a lot of the time, those air enemas actually work pretty well. And so you can save a lot of kids having to go to theatre. You can save a lot of hospital resources and you as the save a kid all that recovery time that they don't need. So it's a good technique that's sad that it can't be used in some countries because it has a huge impact on the families involved. So in countries where there's not much training on air enemas, such as in Myanmar, then the tendency would be you diagnose and then you take the kids straight to theatre instead. So we have a cheap, non-invasive solution to a problem, but instead, due to familiarity and expertise, kids are getting an operation instead. So for the methods of the study, what the team did was they did a retrospective chart review of interventions for intersusception in Yangon's Children's Hospital, 
Uh, and then they delivered a three-hour series of traditional lectures, which were highly rated by the participants, and followed that with a simulation-based workshop on air enemas, and it was created using input from local specialists. So the air enema uh, simulator was really cheap. It's a doll. It's some rubber tubing that could stand the pressures that you generate from an air enema, uh, and then three previously recorded real patient air enema videos and a real image intensifier from the hospital service. So the scenarios that were involved uh, involved rehearsing to three different outcomes that can happen during that procedure. So there was a successful reduction, an unsuccessful reduction, and then uh, one of the rare risks of air enemas is an intestinal perforation, which you then need to take the patient straight to theatre. So they collected some surveys of confidence from the participants, uh, both pre and post their educational intervention, and then they evaluated patient outcomes after the workshops for the next year, bearing in mind that this procedure was not done in Myanmar in the year before. And so the results were that about 100 kids presented in both the pre and post intervention year, uh, that 25 participants were involved in the workshop, um, and 95% of the people who attended that workshop had never been involved in that technique. After their education, for the next year, 59% of kids got an ultrasound, whereas previously they didn't. They got a barium enema in Myanmar. Um, and then 48% of the kids who presented were treated with an air enema post-education. And their success rate was great. It was 91.7%, which is well within sort of international expectations. So there were three kids who needed an operation for bowel resection and intersusception reduction. And for those kids who did get an operation, they were more likely to need a bowel resection. Now that sounds bad if you read it superficially, but the reason for that, as the paper explains, is that the kids who likely going to need a bowel restriction, resection are often the ones where the air enema doesn't work anyway. So if your rate of bowel resection goes up in your operations, as opposed to just opening up the abdomen, straightening out the bowel physically and putting it back in, that means you're picking the right patients to operate on because they wouldn't have got better anyway. So that's a good outcome. Unsurprisingly, the participants rated increased confidence after their workshop. Um, and all up, the simulator that was designed cost 18 bucks US and had a very significant impact on behaviours and clinical management within that hospital. And the, the authors conclude that this demonstrates that simulation doesn't have to be expensive to be educationally and clinically valuable. And look, my impression was I think this is a pretty good study for the clinical intervention nominated within the boundaries of what's ethically acceptable. As we talked about with the last paper, you can't really hold placebo uh, in these kind of things. So I think this was the right choice. And while it doesn't show that SIM is better than another educational technique, to me, it demonstrates something more valuable, which is it, it provides a pathway to show that simulations and lectures combined can have an impressive impact on decreasing barriers to implementation of new surgical techniques in a resource-limited setting. I think it was a really clear clinical problem that's well-suited to simulated solutions. It doesn't need particularly high physical fidelity. Um, it does demonstrate, I think, from the scenario design, great functional task alignment. What do you need the mannequin to do? Let's make one that doesn't look super real but can get you to rehearse all of the things you need uh, with uh, an impressive outcome for real-life patients. What did you think, Vic? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to like about this paper. And I have admired Ram Nataraja's work uh, down at Monash with his surgical simulation in the Piat Monash Children's down there. Uh, I also, by the way, admired your lovely description of intersusception and how air enemas work. Thank you. I can see why you're a successful pediatric emergency. <laughs> it's almost like I've had to give that speech before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I also liked how you explained quite a complicated quantitative paper so simply. Uh, but I agree, lots to like. Patient-focused outcomes at a national level and being able to measure that is quite a feat in itself. Uh, obviously, as you said, designing the simulation so it's fit for purpose, uh, not just for the training purpose, but actually for a purpose related to patient-focused outcomes again. Uh, one of the challenges of any of these methodologies um, when you use a pre-post is always the question of which element of the intervention actually led to the improvement. Uh, and you could say simply running the study and telling people about air enemas will have had some effect. Um, maybe watching the videos, maybe going to the lectures had a lot of effect. Maybe it was the simulations. We, we obviously don't know exactly what contributed to the effect, but we would intuit that it is a combination of all of those things and I guess we trust that the educational design that aligns those elements of the intervention uh, is a good one and I don't know that that troubles me too much that it may not be the perfect mix because it seems to have had an excellent outcome. Uh, the only other thing I'd mention is I think they concentrate obviously a lot on the doctors, um, radiologists and surgeons, but I wondered why they didn't uh, involve any other members of the team, but maybe I just didn't read the article in a sufficient detail to see how that got addressed. Hmm, I guess uh, that is a fair point, although often from my I could be talking wrongly, but often it's actually done in radiology and there isn't a huge amount of allied health staff there. Um, beyond giving some sedation. So I can see why if they only had 25 participants, they were focusing on the people running the machine. Yeah, and the procedural aspects. Yeah. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, so this is a paper titled Listening and Using Participant and Observer Perspectives Following Large Group Team-Based Simulations, Empowering Many Voices. And this is by Brown Mawson Cooper from Aberdeen in BMJ Stell in March 2020. Uh, just by way, even before we get right into the paper, um, this is a uh, one of these in-practice reports in BMJ Stell, which is a very popular category, uh, which has a sort of brief, succinct, practical uh application that is shared without needing a in-depth research methodology. So uh, I would encourage people who are looking to submit that kind of work to look at that category in BMJ still. So this particular paper, uh, the introduction, they um, outline that many of our simulation activities now involve a larger numbers of participants and observers. And the context in which this group in Aberdeen report is related to the uh, Scottish Trauma Network who've developed a one-day training workshop uh, attended by uh, interprofessional teams where participants, among other things, do a number of simulation scenarios. And as with many of these courses, they do two cases and they watch two uh, and they describe what the nature of them uh, is and would be familiar to many trauma providers, uh, reception and handover, topics around shock, neurogenic shock and traumatic cardiac arrest. 
But what they really focus on is how do you debrief when you've got a large number of participants and observers, recognising that if you just bring that whole group into a room, uh, you end up having a conversation with a small number of people or you end up having a very diluted conversation, conversation where maybe we don't get a chance to explore some things that are really important to the participants. So I'm going to quote from them, the course debriefing strategy was intentionally designed to manage the large number of participants who make up the interprofessional team. So what they did was they separated uh, the participants into two groups initially, the participants in the sim and the observers, and each of those groups went with a facilitator. Uh, and then after that, they came back together. Now, while they were separated, they used a the diamond debrief model, and some of you might remember that. This was from Peter Jay and colleagues, including Gay Breedy, in 2015, uh, which has look a, a moderately familiar format in terms of a descriptive phase, an analysis phase, and an application phase. So each group did that separately, and then they came back together, and the facilitators shared uh, some of their sort of top points in a process that the authors describe as simultaneous successive debriefing. It's always good to get another name out there, Ben. Absolutely, uh, especially in an alliteration. <laughs> I know, exactly. So, look, I, my thought on this is I think this is another good idea that just illustrates that we shouldn't be too constrained in our debriefing approach, but we should be very thoughtful about what is it that we're trying to achieve, what are our constraints and opportunities in terms of numbers, format and time, and how do we make sure that we have a reflective process that makes the most of the sim within those constraints. And uh, and I think this is just another way of thinking about that. Yeah, I agree. I I think it was really appropriate for the in-practice report as well. For me, it left me a little bit thirsty for some more meat in the sandwich about what the impact was on the learners or the educators and what their p perspectives were about using that particular strategy. Um, but I thought it was a great a proposed solution. Yeah, absolutely. There was a couple of little side points about how they – felt that the doctor, the facilitators that ran each debrief were doctors and given that they really wanted to empower the many voices uh, and in particular the other disciplines. I wasn't too sure, though, that that's where the fault lines are. In my experience of trauma simulations, often the divides are between departments rather than professions. So you've got the operating theatre people and you've got the ED people and you've got the pre-hospital people. Uh, but I think that was a small side point, but as you say, the level of detail um, would probably add more to the understanding here. Yeah, that was great. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, why don't you tell us about our fourth sort of paper, sort of blog post? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I really wanted to share this. Uh, this is, uh, we have a bit of a conflict of interest here in that uh, Laura Rock, who wrote this opinion piece, uh, is friends of us both and friends of the podcast. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about is Laura Rock's BMJ opinion piece published in April 13, 2020, uh, entitled Don't Confuse Feelings with Facts. So um in this article, uh, our friend Laura Rock breaks down a common communication habit that I think probably almost all of us fall into frequently, and that is that a colleague or patient or simulation participant expresses an emotion and we answer that emotion with either a logical counterpoint to invalidate or in some way re reassure away that emotion. 
So the example she gives is a patient saying, I'm scared about having this procedure, which is an emotion. And the doctor answering with, don't worry, your surgeon's done this 400 times a year, you're in good hands, which is essentially a fact or a statement of reality. And she argues that by providing information in response to emotion, you can create a disconnection between speaker and listener and that that misses opportunities to build rapport and understand a patient's concerns and values better. And she says, while reassurance may be caring, it often suppresses the emotion expressed. And in doing so, we lose the chance to help the speaker feel heard or to understand what underlies the emotion. Laura then breaks down a simple communication tool to rehearse or work through responding to emotion, which she calls GIVE. So G-I-V-E, get that it's emotion. So diagnose correctly that that's what's being expressed by the speaker identify so kind of like naming the dynamic but recognizing that an emotion has been expressed validating by acknowledging that those feelings have been expressed and then opening up by exploring uh, to invite the speaker to share their perspective and deepen their connection i really love this uh, opinion piece it's very concise it'll take you less than 10 minutes to read but it highlights something that we all do so frequently with the best of intentions that can have an unrecognized negative impact in the quality of conversations and the rapport building we need to do to ensure that patients and families uh, trust us laura is a big believer in the argument that communication can be effectively taught if it's broken down into achievable parts and i think that this uh opinion piece really nuts out both the communication problem and outlines a simple and elegant solution really effectively yes what is not to like about anything laura does i agree and i'll add to your disclosure she is a friend and I had a flashback to being on the smack stage where Laura and I had a discussion about this uh, almost exactly 12 months ago uh, where she talked about this give framework Uh, but more importantly just talked about why it is and how it is that we approach these conversations and I'll give you my example of that um, probably conversation that I have many times a day when a patient says something like I'm worried about my chest pain and I and my colleagues are very given to counter with your ECG is normal, your troponin's normal. And so giving this fact back in the face of the feeling, whereas I think Laura has coached me to say something like, I'm not surprised most people are worried when they have chest pain. Tell me what are you worried about and then get to the bit where you're adding in the facts because that's still our job to reassure with facts, but um, probably we can only do that once we've recognised and understood the emotion. Have I got that right, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. I think we often miss the diagnostic phase. We miss recognizing what the underlying communication is. And then once you've effectively connected with people, then yeah, you can uh, treat or address that so much more effectively. Yeah. Now, I guess just to sort of think about the publishing of this. So this is the uh, BMJ, British Medical Journal blog, which uh, they're very busy. They have a uh, high-volume publication schedule and I think read by many people and it's sort of a hybrid between what we might think of as our traditional journals and something like the simulcast chat with Ben Simon uh, in terms of the methodologic rigour, but I think it's a great place to publish something like this because it is very practical in its application. Uh One of the advantages too is that it is rich with example as well as 
applying theory, and I like the connection of those two things. I guess what my I'm left wondering, Ben, is these examples are still very given in the context in which we work, not just the clinical context but our personalities and the culture and how expressive we might be and how much we talk about feelings. I still wonder that we need to sort of temper this a little bit with those aspects as with any communication. Sounds like you're frustrated, Vic. I'm wondering if you could tell me more about that. (laughs) Are you too clever? (laughs) Well, I genuinely actually don't quite know what you mean. So when you're talking about it, it's, it's very so I think related Laura to what? Is a Laura is an extroverted northeastern American who likes talking about feelings. So for her, I can see this leap is pretty easy. Uh, some of us quieter Australian types might not even like talking about emotions as much, whether we're the person who's expressing it or the person who's hearing it. So I am thinking that some of those examples. The principle's the same, but it just might to be need to be modified in terms of the words and other forms of communication by which we acknowledge the other's emotion. Yeah, absolutely. I think there would be some uh, what, what's the right word? Uh, regional coding, I guess, depending on where you are and what culture you're in as to how you would apply it. But certainly for me, this really hits home because uh, as a pediatric emergency physician in a Uh, first world metropolitan region a significant proportion of my workload is reassurance medicine and uh, one of my biggest beefs is coming on as the consultant in the morning to a uh, short stay that's relatively full with a number of disparaging uh, people in the department talking about that particular parent that can't be reassured no matter what we tell them and how well we tell them their child is and invariably uh, when, when I say and what is it specifically that they're scared about? Uh, nobody is sure. Uh, and uh, if I'm able to give them the task of I want you to go back and not convince them their child as well, I want you to go in and understand why they're worried and come back and tell me, we have a much more successful outcome for that parent-child dyad. So it certainly hits home for me, but I agree it will sort of culturally need to be adapted to who you are and what sits naturally and instinctively with you. Well, that's a nice example that brings me to my second point then, and that is how do we get better at this? It sounds like you partly you get better at it by Ben Simon telling you you missed something and you go back in and try it again. But uh, this does seem to be something we need to get into the habit of responding differently, and I'm just wondering how we break our old habits of responding with facts. Any thoughts on that? Oh, well, that, oh, that's a really tricky question, isn't it? To me, I think the first step is reading something like this and then self-diagnosing. And I think until you become aware of it as a phenomena, it's so inherently baked in to our cultural communication strategies that we don't notice that there's a problem, which is kind of why I find it so invigorating a thing to talk about as well. Uh, and so I think deliberately reading about it, understanding it, and then rehearsing, diagnosing the problem is the first step. And then I think Laura's outlined one option for how to deal with that. But I think just actively taking the step to being mindful of its existence is sort of a partial solution to the problem. What I would say is that there are downsides to this in that sometimes uh, responding to emotion with curiosity, warmth, and rapport is exhausting. 
uh, which is sometimes why we don't do it. Uh, and and so I think there are many reasons that we don't do this, including opening up cans of worms that we don't need to, and that's a perfectly valid protective strategy in some ways. Uh, but knowing when the right moment is to open that up, dig deep and make sure that you're actually connecting with that person, I think is a really important skill. And I think the only answer I have is reading about it, talking about it and watching yourself. And who knows, maybe one day practicing it in a virtual reality simulation. Maybe. Well, it's probably a good candidate for that, isn't it? It yeah. probably is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Ben, uh, for different but interesting papers to think about for our simulation uh, providers, educators this month. Um, tell us, where are we going from here? Back into our sequence of Journal Club, is that right? Yeah, so we're going to go back in time to March, but make it May. Uh, so we are going to look at uh, a paper by Cheng et al., uh, published in Simulation in Healthcare this year, entitled A Conceptual Framework for the Development of Debriefing Skills. And it talks about uh, this concept called adaptive expertise. And maybe you don't always just get good at one particular technique. Maybe what makes you good is you can jump around between techniques at the right moment. So looking forward to the discussion. Yes, and I think we've already had some discussion back in uh, March, which will become May. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to look at that paper yet or contribute to the discussion, www.simulationpodcast.com. Uh, I'll put that link, plus obviously the links to the papers we've been talking about today in the blog post accompanying this podcast. All right, Ben, well, I hope you have a uh, good month between chats and uh, stay well. Yeah, you too, mate. Looking forward to seeing you soon. All right. Signing off for Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel with Ben Simon. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.